This isn't dentistry. People should be able to see themselves in our courts. And in 20 years, we're not on a path that that's going to happen or be possible. And we don't all have to to agree, but I think we at least need to have the conversation. I think that's what's at the heart of becoming a more equitable profession is being willing to have those tough conversations about disrupting those norms. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. Leaders of the bar are not always perched in high positions on Bay Street or litigating a case at the Supreme Court of Canada. Sometimes, leaders of the profession are found in law school or as junior counselors in a small town Ontario. For these leaders and influencers, like Douglas Judson and Heather Donkers, the best is yet to come. In this episode of Of Counsel, we interview the present and former president of the Law Students Society of Ontario. While their names may not be immediately recognizable to senior lawyers, they are widely known for their work in advancing the interests of law students and recent members of our profession. Heather and Douglas dive deep into what it means to be a recently called lawyer and law student in 2019, and how much times have changed in the past 20, 10, and even five years. This is an essential listen for any lawyer who wants to come to terms with just how much recent calls feel abandoned and hopeless as they enter the profession. With the upcoming venture election, it is more important than ever to listen to their voices and explain why we need to change it as a profession if we want to save it. On this episode Above Council. Before we begin this episode with Heather and Douglas, a quick message from our sponsor, LexisNexis Canada. Sign up for LexisNexis Solo and Small eBrief, a newsletter for Canadian solo and small law firms. Read about the latest news, emerging practice trends, and our upcoming events. Subscribe to their free newsletter by visiting our website and clicking on the link. Without further ado, here is Douglas Judson and Heather Donkers. Hey everybody, welcome to a special episode of Council. I'm here with Douglas Judson and Heather Donkers, former and present LSSO presidents. So the reason we're doing today's podcast is, as we all know, there's an upcoming venture election. And one of the hot topics and controversial topics is the lack of representation for more recent calls and uh, the inability for law students and articling students more particularly to participate in the process, notwithstanding uh, fees and other expenses and obviously uh, long-term considerations that should be taken into account for these people. Um, so with this episode, we're hoping to give a voice where in part voices aren't present and uh, bring the issue front and center to the venture election coming up that uh, the voices of recent calls are important and they must be heard. So welcome, Heather and Douglas. Thanks for having me. Thank you. 
All right, so let's start. Uh, Douglas, I, I want to know how your career in law started. What motivated you uh, not only to commence, but continue with where you are today? And just um, so we know, Douglas, you are uh, now a lawyer in your third year of call? Yes, I'm coming up to three years. And I know that because I went to Harcourts this morning to let my get my waistcoat let out, actually. <laughs> that's that's how you know you've made it. The third year let out. That's right. That's right. <laughs> they have about two and a half inches of give in them, just so everybody knows. <laughs> and Heather, you are um, still a law student technically at Osgoode, but you're starting your articles very soon at 720 Bay. Yes. All right. So Douglas, back to you. Why did you um, decide to get into law in the first place? What motivated you? You know, I came to law from a public service background. I am originally from a small town in Northern Ontario where people um, hew wood and draw water and raise cattle and things like that. Um, but I, I went to Ottawa for university and I found myself in uh, the political world on Parliament Hill and then eventually in the public service. And through that series of events, I came to respect the approach to policy topics that people with legal training had that I was familiar with. And I didn't have a lot of exposure to um, to lawyers before that time. Uh, and so I, I, I thought that there was an opportunity to advance policy issues in a meaningful way that was sort of viewed with some reverence and respect more so than than people from other fields can sometimes bring in terms of gravitas and uh, and law seemed like a good way to do that um, I actually pursued a JD MBA because um, I felt that being able to ground that in a bit of a business um, mind frame would also be helpful to my longer term goals, which um, has kind of brought me to where I am now. I, I left Bay Street to move back to northwestern Ontario, where um, I'm able to maintain a, a small practice, but also have a bunch of other roles in my community and various leadership uh, type capacities. What law school did you go to? I went to Osgood. Went to Osgood, and so now a present Osgood student, Heather. Um, why did you get into law, and where are we going from here? Yeah, so law was not something I always considered doing. I was an undergraduate student studying global development at Queens, and I had dreams of doing humanitarian work in countries that were experiencing crisis. But then I had my own kind of crisis, and I experienced a sexual assault and went through the criminal justice system. And it seems kind of twisted now, but uh, as I was being cross-examined, actually, on the witness stand, I looked at the defense lawyer and thought, hmm, maybe I could do that. And I never looked back, and now I'm pursuing a career in criminal law. So I'm in my last week of law school, actually, and I'll be articling with the Crown Law Office criminal at 720 Bay starting in August. Now, uh, Douglas, I'm going to throw this question back to you, but Heather, I want to uh, start uh, with you, and that is, your expectations going into law school compared to where you are now. And, and I'm very interested in your answer because I know from watching you on social media, you're very active, um, obviously, as president of the Law Student Society, that um, these sorts of issues facing students is very important. And I wonder, being so involved in it, has your perspective changed when you first started to where you are now? Like, have you become more optimistic, more cynical, or maybe a bit of both? Hmm. Well, honestly, I had no idea what to expect from law school. I was the first person in my family to go to university, let alone to get a law degree. So I really felt like a fish out of water going to Osgoode. But now that I'm in my last week, I can kind of reflect and say that I got as much out of it as I put into it, which was a lot in retrospect. And I think it's more or less prepared me for what's to come in the profession. So I'm I'm really excited to to get started in my career. What about you, Douglas? What about when you first started law school and then when you ended law school? And I'm going to take that a little bit further. Um, How's your perspective changed from one, two, and then three to where you are now? 
Well, my prescription has gotten stronger. Um, <laughs> so that has changed my perspective. But uh, I guess I would say that, um, you know, I think much like Heather, actually, I came into this as I'm the first, um, the first male in my family to have a university degree. My mother is the first, um, the first in my lineage altogether that has a university degree. Um, and so I didn't really have many presumptions about, you know, what a very staunch and storied professional culture would be like. Um, I think that I did generate some impressions through my work with Out on Bay Street and being involved in those circles and gaining that familiarity with that corporate legal world and then later mo- working with uh, with one of those those larger firms. But what I've since found having moved to a completely different region of the province to practice is that I think it's much like other industries and in that it really much, it very much depends like what your work environment is and what the culture of your workplace is and and what norms and leadership styles are are in place in that environment. So I, I don't like to overgeneralize and say that law has a way that things ought to be, aside from the rules of civil procedure and all that. But, you know, I think that the way we work is very context-based. Right. So tell me, uh, let's drill down a little bit more on that. Uh, tell me about your personal experience. Since you graduated law school, you already mentioned um, your involvement in Out on Bay Street and some other community involvement. And not just that, you've also been involved in politics. You've opened your own practice. Um, you're now running for bencher. So let's hear it. Where are you at? All the fanfare. Um, <laughs> no, it's, uh, it, it, it's been, uh, you know, I, there were times certainly during law school, and I think every student um, has these, especially if you come into it from a first-generation perspective where no, literally there's no one in your immediate support network who has ever been to law school and knows what hell you're dealing with. And <laughs> I, I think that there are times when you're like, why did I do this to myself? And certainly having left like a, a, a what is considered a good job in government to go to law school, I think that there were times I felt that, but I've never looked back, I think, um, particularly since I made decisions that have given me more control over how I choose to practice and what my role in the professional community is. So um, I found my way to McCarthy Tatro, which provided me with an exceptional um, professional foundation. I I learned a lot uh, about sort of the um, the actual tools of the trade that you don't get in law school. Um, in my time there, I summered and articled and actually, actually intern summered, articled, and then was an associate through McCarthy's um, in their litigation group. At a certain point, uh, my spouse and I actually made a decision together that we wanted to move to northwestern Ontario, where I am from. Uh, it's a small victory for me. Hmm. And uh, because we recognized that there was an aging bar in the community and that they were very receptive to providing us with, us with opportunities to to grow our practices in ways that were meaningful for us. Um, and uh, and that's where we are today. My, my partner practices criminal and family, uh, a little bit of real estate in there. Um, I practice mostly part time, but largely just within the domain of uh, of some very like um, Padawan learner corporate law and some of the civil litigation. So I, I'm going to return to uh, some of those topics because I, I definitely want to talk about your involvement in politics. But Heather, before we move on to that point, um, what I'd say is, you know, I, I've come to know you quite well because you've been been a student with the firm for some time and essential to a lot of our blogging success as of late. So thank you for that. And you've had, um, I, I would describe, I'm very biased, but a remarkable time at law school with uh, a lot of success. And I know you don't necessarily like speaking about that and your accomplishments, but I think it's important in context that we discuss this in the relation to the challenges you've also faced, notwithstanding. So tell me um, about your involvement at law school, where you're articling now, and what you had to do to get there. 
So in my first year, I was uh, heavily involved in Osgood's legal clinic as a criminal law caseworker. And I also was involved with a number of different lawyers working on research projects concerning domestic and sexual violence. And then in my second year, I had the great fortune of spending a semester uh, in Geneva, actually in Switzerland, at the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights in the Anti-Racial Discrimination Unit. And then when I returned from that, I was a summer student at the Ministry of Community Safety and Correctional Services. And then in my last year of law school now, I focused a lot more on student politics. So as you mentioned, I'm the current president of the Law Student Society of Ontario. I'm also the chair of the student section of the Ontario Bar Association and the president of the Osgood chapter of Canadian Lawyers for International Human Rights. So, I mean, I've done a lot of mooting along the way as well, which has been really fun. And um, I've had the great honor of working with your firm at, throughout the year. And then for articling, like I said, I'll be at the Crown Law Office Criminal at 720 Bay, which is honestly a dream come true for me to be working in appellate criminal law. So I'm really excited about that. So what would you tell um, Heather Donkers circa, what, 2015 when you started law school? Yeah, I think that the best advice I've gotten or the what I see now that I didn't necessarily see then is that you really get out of the experience of law school what you put into it. And I think I think sometimes I had to work double as hard as some of my colleagues um, to get to the same places that they were. Uh, and that's probably because, you know, I didn't know any lawyers before I came into law school and I was doing it for the first time on my own. Um, and so I, I kind of, like I said, felt like a fish out of water. And I think that's why I put myself so heavily into getting involved, not only in student politics, but, um, you know, in different, uh, different areas of law and trying to kind of feel out where my place was. And so I think... I think I've, I've just kind of stayed true to that and gotten myself involved in things that I was passionate about. And honestly, I wouldn't change a thing looking back now. So Heather, as I understand it, you're now the third or fourth president of the Law Student Society of Ontario. I think I'm the fourth or the fifth. Yeah. And Douglas, you were the first official president. I was the first, but there were many efforts before I was installed to uh, bring the, um, the, as I call them, the fathers and mothers of confederation together to form a greater union, a one ring to bind them of law students. <laughs> um, I would say just a lot of violence. And- uh, fortunately, <laughs> not. Just like, you know, lawyer wrangling at a very junior level. But right. um, I, I want to pick up on what Heather said, actually. And I think that it's important is that I think when I reflect on people that are around my vintage in terms of years of call, the ones that are most content in their professional lives now are the ones that didn't adopt a sort of what I would call like a careerist serious approach to law school. And, and I think did much what Heather has done. I think what I did a little bit, but probably took me longer to figure out to do it was to do things that naturally appealed to me and to recognize that I didn't need to be the perfect butterfly lawyer that was on the law journal to be a successful person. And, uh, and, you know, and I think that that has served me well because I've been able to develop skills that I think serve me in my professional life now that I probably would have, um, ignored or kept a little bit more closeted, if you would, during law school because of, uh, because of there is a, a mold you're often pressured to follow. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I started doing the same thing at the beginning. I was, uh, you know, an associate editor on the Osgood Hall Law Journal and things like oh, that. It's just the worst. I did all the things that I, I thought I had to do to get to where I needed to be, but it became apparent to me really quickly that it would be more organic and I think I would get further in, in doing what I wanted to do if I just stuck to doing things that I was passionate about and that I was good at. You know, what I've noticed about both of you is that as you've neared the end of your uh, law school careers or law school studies, 
Um, you both are very widely known within the bar, and there may be a lot of reasons for that. Um, but in particular, Douglas, I use it as an example. In 2014, um, you were a newsmaker, quote, by the Los Himes and received the Canadian Bar Association um, Edward K. Rowan Leg Award for contributions to a law student in 2015. And you also um, managed to accomplish a lot of academic achievements. I'm just prefacing that because I'm, I'm curious, was there a point uh, where you realized there was a bit of a tipping point in this change of trajectory that you were both sort of talking about? Like, was it kind of letting go and having the courage to say, for example, you know, you say I wouldn't have been as out as, as I thought initially? You know, I, I think part of it is, I think at, at a certain point, I gained recognition from people who were practicing at a time when I wasn't yet, that things I was doing and were inv- involved in were of value. I mean, much in the way you've invited Heather and I here today, validating things we have to say that others may not wish to hear. Um, <laughs> we, I, I think I received some positive affirmations from people in the legal community. And, and so I try to pay that forward myself when I get calls from like, oh, I'm thinking of doing a JD MBA or like, how can um, I get involved with a lawyer who's doing some litigation on this LGBT issue or whatever, um, and try to make those connections for younger lawyers. And I very much credit actually um, people I met through the Ontario Bar Association for that. And I think the the section system they have, um, for me, it was the Sojic section was very involved in a lot of issues that I started following and piping up a bit about. And I, I started to get this sort of like, oh, you have valid perspective on, on things that perhaps isn't always recognized or channeled appropriately within the legal education environment. What about you, Heather? And in the context, you know, like uh, I've heard a similar type of comment from um, Orlando Da Silva. You know, it was when he kind of had the courage to say, this is what I've gone through or this is who I am. Um, A lot of doors really started to open up for him in a positive way because, um, you know, he was comfortable now talking about that. And even Heather, you've, you know, explained your motivations for getting into law school. Do you feel that that helped your trajectory? Absolutely, it did. I was open about that from day one. And I think it introduced me to a lot of people. It introduced me to a lot of good mentors. Just being open about it, not only in, in social spaces, but online, on Twitter and um, in areas in which I could connect with other lawyers and other law students. I think it was absolutely crucial to what little success I've had so far that I was open and authentic about who I was and why I was at law school and what I wanted to do with my time there. And so I think it's it's been crucial, and I think that that's something I'm going to carry with me through my practice for sure. Douglas, back in 2015, I think it was, that's when the last venture election was, I recall you were the president at the time and you were very active on social media. And at that time, I mean, even now a lot of lawyers still aren't on it, but, um, you know, it seems you were of a generation where there was a lot of embracing of social media. How do you feel that that's helped your career or advancement as a lawyer? Well, I haven't gotten sued yet, so that's um, <laughs> that's that's helpful. I mean, knock on wood, this podcast is, uh, is in, pro- over yet. in progress. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I think in some ways. Um, you know, not that Twitter is like very young, but law is kind of slow on the uptake, right. as it were. And I think that younger voices, if you search like the law Twitter hashtags or women in law hashtags, you're seeing a lot of younger lawyers that are the ones contributing to the dialogue. Uh, and because like legal media has started to jump into that space too, they're amplifying it a bit. And I think it is important. I, I'm sometimes conscious or worried that what if this is an echo chamber? 
what if they don't care? Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, I think that these have provided useful tools and platforms for people from, from different communities to voice their view and, and concern about topics in our profession. Yeah, I think you're quite right. And, you know, certainly the echo chamber aspect is there. But we saw firsthand just recently with uh, Brianna Needham, who was able to uh, amplify, as you say, the issue about the change rooms at Osgoode Hall. And I, as, as far as I could see, that all happened on social media, and now that's all being changed. And I, there's a lot of other examples. What about you, Heather? Are there particular things that you have uh, felt uh, social media has helped or even hurt? Well, anyone who knows me knows I love Twitter. I spend a lot of time on it. But what it's what it's given me personally is a lot of mentorship. It's allowed me to connect with a lot of lawyers that I probably wouldn't have otherwise connected with, knowing that I'm a first-generation law student and didn't have those connections coming into law school. So it really expanded my network. And then it gave me a platform to, you know, talk about things that are personal to me, talk about criminal law, learn about criminal law, and also in large part, you know, the things that I was doing with the Law Student Society of Ontario um, and the tuition report that we put out and things like that, that kind of just blew up as a result of Twitter and social media. And I I don't think that would have happened had it not been for uh, legal Twitter. So I think uh, it's a very useful tool. And, you know, sometimes it sparks debate and people can get caught up in the back and forth and the fact that it's instantaneous can can cause problems. But I think for no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I think I think for the most part, it's it's uh, it's a really useful tool, and if you if you use it in a way that's productive and that's you know conversational, then I think it it really can kind of further the goals that we have as students. So I think this is a nice segue into what's going on right now with the venture election and the conversations that are happening. A lot of this is on social media about. Uh, how recent calls and articling students aren't properly represented at convocation. And we've seen a lot of activity around these issues and several others. To sort of flesh that out, I want to ask you both so that our listeners can better understand what it's like for a day-to-day for a fourth-year call and what it's like for a day-to-day as a law student. Um, so, Douglas, I'll start with you. Just tell me, you know, and I know we're perhaps overgeneralizing, but I just want to know what is it like for you on a day-to-day? You know, my day to day is very unconventional. So I, I, I don't assume that my practice really reflects what a lot of fourth year calls are doing or third year calls are doing. Um, I, I think that that is the result of choices that I have made. And so I don't really know that I can answer the question in the most representative way. Like certainly I am in touch with, um, my peers that are still with larger firms that have a bit more of a standard, um, trajectory or regimen that you're going through. But my practice is a bit more of a choose your own adventure. I mean, choose your client's adventure. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that, um, you know, and that has been, I think my saving grace because I, I'm a bit of a dabbler and that I want I want the task variety that comes with the with the various um, you know activities that I've chosen to fill my time. So um, for me, my day involves I spend a few hours on a couple of clients that I've chosen to take on because their issues are important to me and I think they're important for my community. I spend a few hours dealing with um, because I'm a municipal counselor and I will talk about that later. But everything that you might imagine people have to say to a municipal counselor. And, uh, you know, and, and I work, um, in economic development doing, um, you know, um, your standard, uh, ritualistic contract writing and emailing to secure grant money and, and that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. my, my day is not standard and, and that's actually the way I love it because I'm in control. So at least if it's not going to be standard, it's on my watch. So if I may though, you are, have your, um, a finger on the pulse here. You have a lot of, uh, involvement with 
your peers. And, you know, as a former president, you kind of know what a lot of these issues are. Uh, and now you're running as venture. And I think a lot of your platform is focused on, you know, a recent call representation. So what is it that you think is lacking there that, um, if anything? Well, you know, there's the old adage that's been floating around in the profession and politics for a long time that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And I don't want to suggest there's anything salacious going on, of course, but so many of the issues that we have seen before convocation, um, at least as long as I've been aware of this thing called convocation, um, have impacted law students, um, licensing candidates, and junior lawyers in disproportionate ways. But the people making the decisions are so far removed from that experience and the challenges and the burdens that go with those stages today that, frankly, I don't think that they can necessarily make the best decision or fully internalize the impact of those decisions. Like the year the LPP came in place, we saw a a huge spike in licensing costs that was ultimately shifted to candidates. Um, You know, we're seeing law schools um, with with their tuition skyrocketing. We're up to like 40,000 a year at some of the schools in Toronto. And, you know, our ability to regulate or not regulate and the choices we make have significant impacts on who gets to be a part of the club? Who gets to become a lawyer? Who gets to even contemplate that they could be a lawyer? Um, and uh, and that's why I think having junior voices at the table and people from other equity-seeking groups is so important um, in, in this venture election. And it's not just about that diversity element, but I think it's also that when you bring in younger voices, you're bringing in people who are perhaps just naturally more connected to tools that could be used to improve how we provide access to services and how we address um, access to justice challenges. Um, And, you know, and obviously there's a, you know, a a natural link to technology there and our fluency with that. And, you know, certainly when I was articling, I worked with a number of young lawyers that were, you know, just their, their technology abilities blew me out of the water. And I think I'm pretty good. So, you know, I, I think that there is, a strong case to be made for those young voices. We've seen other jurisdictions in Canada give them a formal seat and and, and role in the process. And uh, you know, as the as the largest bar, we're we're late to the game. I think we need to do better. So taking that um, even further, then to your um, soon to be call level, uh, Heather, as an articling student, what do you hear the voices of your peers saying in relation to this detachment issue? So I absolutely agree with everything that Douglas said. And I, I would pick up specifically on, you know, establishing a recent call category of venture, which I think is one of the most pressing issues that we need to champion because if that's going to be the only way that we can get a recent call onto a convocation, or even if it's not, it, it's important that we establish an ongoing precedent of having those voices at the table, like Douglas said. Um, and it seems, it seems to me that there are a lot of barriers in running for venture and in being part of convocation that are particularly acute for recent calls. So we need to establish that, I think. And in terms of what my my peers are saying, I think, again, social media has really, it's really put this particular venture election on the table for students. I think previous to that, uh, to this, so perhaps at the 2015 election, it wasn't as prominent. And I think uh, the LSO can be quite uh, opaque for students. Um, and so I think that, t- that Twitter and, and other social media platforms have really helped students engage in this election and see what's going on and what the platforms are and, uh, you know, what positions people are taking. Uh, unfortunately, we can't vote. So in some ways, um, 
it's it's a moot point, but I think that it's important that students are still engaging in the conversation online about these issues so that we can at least make sure that our voices are heard in that in that respect. Now, we know um, from past elections that voter turnout just keeps getting worse and worse, and it's getting worse in a way that affects directly what we're talking about here, and that is that younger uh, lawyers, recent calls, are the worst as far as ver- voter turnout uh, is. A, do you think that's going to change, Heather? And uh, B, uh, if not, how do we change that? Well, I hope it does. I certainly hope it does. I, I think I think students are becoming more engaged now that uh, we're kind of breaking that that wall between the LSO and and the students. And I'm hoping I hope that I've been a little bit of a part of that because um, in trying to bridge the gap between the LSSO and the LSO, a lot of what we've done is put what we're doing on on social media and make sure that people know about what's going on and trying to trying to bridge that gap. Like I say, so I think that that students are becoming engaged, and as we become young lawyers, will hopefully. Um, translate that into our votes. But I wish we had votes even as articling students um, when it does fall on an election year. And I think that it's maybe skipping ahead in the conversation here a little bit, but I think it's unacceptable that we don't have votes for for two reasons. And the first one is that, you know, just last week I paid $5,000 or close to $5,000 in dues to the Law Society for my two licensing exams and for the oversight of the articling and the LPP program and administrative fees. But Having paid those fees, even though I won't, of course, be called to the bar until after articling, it would seem that students and and younger lawyers should have some say in the in the decisions of the body that's collecting those fees. And second, because of the year that the bench bench election falls on for me in particular, you know, the people who will be elected to convocation in April will remain on convocation for at least the first two years of my practice as a lawyer after my call to the bar. And so the four year bench term basically ensures that. At some point, mostly every law student will be represented by a convocation that they did not vote for. Right. And I think that's problematic. So I think I think students are becoming engaged is the short answer. And I think that I hope that it will help that we hopefully get a recent call bencher category and that maybe we can push for um, an articling student vote as well to help facilitate that. Well, I remember it was, I think it was on yesterday on Twitter, something resonated with me and uh, I had posed the question on a, a poll to sort of say, should articling students have a uh, a vote, and I mean, in my incredibly unscientific bias uh, poll, um, which did have 200 votes, so I guess it means something, but it seemed there was an overwhelming majority that people thought they should have a vote. But I say that because one comment really re- resonated with me, and that is um, it goes back to the fundamental principle of uh, no taxation without representation. You know, and I know we're not a government in the proper sense, but there's a certain element of fairness to that principle that I think is really lacking here. That it just seems like the law society either doesn't know about or doesn't care, but I, I think it's really wrong. But I want to ask you again, Heather, I, um, not ignoring you, Douglas, I'm getting back to you, but I want to ask you the day to day, like, I think there's a real detachment here of what senior lawyers think the experience for a law student is right now. So is there, maybe a good story that sort of illustrates the struggle that law students are going through right now? Or do you have sort of a general um, explanation of how hard it is for you? Yeah, I mean, in terms of I want to pick up what you said about the detachment, I will say that I really appreciate the efforts of more recent calls like Douglas and lawyers, say, within their first 15 years of practice who have been helping to help bridge the gap between students and more senior members of the bar. So 
For example, I was lucky to meet Erin Durant of BLG a, f- a few weeks back on a recent trip to Ottawa, and she arranged for me to meet Justice Cromwell and just talk to him very briefly about the report that I had put out on tuition. And in that same trip, I was introduced by the president of the Canadian Bar Association, Ray Adlington, to Justice Martin of the Supreme Court and to Justice McLaughlin. And I also got to speak to them about the um, the issues in, that we are facing and the challenges that I see. And actually, Justice Martin uh, wrote a handwritten letter back to me to thank me for sending her my report. And so I appreciate that there are lawyers who are trying to bridge the gap between um, senior members of the bar and even justices of the Supreme Court and students in the issues that we're facing. But I think that, you know, obviously my principal concern, if anyone who's seen my advocacy online, is the inaccessibility of legal education for students. And, you know, I've, I've talked at length, uh, online about, about tuition and the obvious costs associated with law school and, and licensing. But I also think that it's the little things that are being overlooked, like the cost of buying a suit and the cost of buying robes and all of those things that add up for students that I think aren't necessarily considered by members of the senior bar or they forget that that's something they had to pay for and that in light of $40,000 tuition, for example, at University of Toronto, it's really difficult for us. So in terms of a story, uh, just a brief one, you know, I recently was competing in the Wilson Moot and my coaches were both uh, lawyers at Tories LLP, but I live in Newmarket with my parents currently to try and save money. And so I would drive at least once a week for two months down to moot practice in downtown Toronto. So the cost of gas in the car. And then the parking in this building was $40 for the very short meeting that I had. And over the course of the two months to participate in a moot that was um, for academic credit cost me hundreds of dollars just to be able to go to my moot practice. And I think it's those things that aren't being considered in the conversation about tuition and about accessibility of legal education and about what that means for for students who are struggling and who just want to be able to do the work that they need to do but are facing barriers like that. Douglas, you were, um, you know, a lot of these issues you had raised four years ago, you know, are you optimistic of where we're going or does it look like things are getting worse from your perspective? Uh, I think things are getting a lot worse. I mean, the the sticker price is still going up and up and up and it doesn't show signs of stopping. And, uh, you know, if you look at the testimonials that are printed in both the 2019 version of the LSSO's report that Heather commissioned and the 2015 version that I commissioned, you'll see comments of of a similar tenor that are reflecting that why does no one care about this? Why do all the authority figures in this storied profession continue to pay lip service to this issue but do nothing about it? And, you know, I think there's also a knee-jerk reaction among some to write this off as, like, you know, pot banging in the streets over, like, some uh, about, you know, tuition generally. And it's not. Because if we think about it, legal education has a very important nexus with how we structure and administer the state. If you cannot get a legal education, you cannot get called to the bar. There's a whole bunch of functions within our, uh, you know, national um, dialogue and how we've structured government that you can't participate in, that you will never be part of. And we have set up systemic barriers that are disproportionately keeping out certain groups along those lines. And I think that that's unacceptable. This isn't dentistry. People should be able to see themselves in our courts. And in 20 years, we're not on a path that that's going to happen or be possible. Heather, I want to talk to you about the LSSO report. 
first of all, what was the intention behind it? Why, what motivated this report to be uh, done? So Douglas actually really set the stage for us by bringing the LSSO to the forefront as a law student advocacy body back in 2015. And he did the first version of the report back at that in that year. So the tuition report that he kickstarted the conversation with um, served as a building block for us. And uh, actually, it was a conversation between Douglas and I when we were both at the Supreme Court last year observing the Trinity Western University case. We were there. Um, the LSSO was an intervener. And there was a comment made, uh, and I can't remember who made it, maybe Douglas can fill in here, but by one of the justices of the Supreme Court who, who made a comment about how this the the principles in that case might apply to you know tuition at law school and to accessibility to a legal education and we both kind of looked at each other and i thought wow like you know even in the supreme court is kind of recognizing that there are barriers here and so in that moment i decided because partly because it affects me personally but also because i think we needed to reinvigorate the conversation that douglas had started that i felt like we needed to revamp the survey and revamp the report 5 years later and see whether it had gotten better or worse or stayed the same. And as Douglas was alluding to earlier, I, th- I think it had gotten worse. But you see a lot of the same themes in the 2019 report that you saw in the 2015 report as well. I think something, too, that part of this conversation that we shouldn't take for granted is that we are all sort of participating in it as like a, a relatively privileged group that have been able to overcome these barriers and we're at the table and we're on the podcast and, <laughs> you know, we're, we're part of the discussion. And I have often reflected since being in law school and over the course of law school that I encountered so many people that, you know, despite me being a mostly first generation student and having no concept of what Stikeman Elliott is and why I should care about that um, or anything like that when I started law school, though, like my barriers were far more limited and minimal compared to other people that I became aware of during law school and I continue to become aware of. And I, I think that it's very easy for us in law to forget that there are so many people that just don't have the foundational information of our craft and it just compounds the uh, typically like cultural or experiential or lived experience barriers that come with not being able to overcome the sticker shock or having that weigh on you the entire time you're in law school. And, and that's something that I, I think is really important if we, if we care about having a representative bar. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, uh, you know, just from my own experience, I mean, I, I'm in a much better position than you were, um, and certainly you, Heather, as far as the tuition. And uh, personally, I, I never came from uh, any lineage of lawyers. I paid my way through school as well. And even though my tuition was, quote, only about $11,000 a year, uh, I can't tell you how far that set me back in projecting my business, in investing in new associates, in paying people what I want to pay them, in you know growing and offering other opportunities to law students. And I can't imagine where we're going to be in 10 years if people are graduating with $200,000 in debt and then wanting to be a sole practitioner. I mean, you've already, you're 10 years behind just when you factor in the interest and everything like that. And um, yeah, it's, it's very concerning. So let me ask you about the report itself. What were some of the takeaways or perhaps things that really surprised you when you were doing this? I'll start with you, Heather. What are some things that kind of shocked you? And even though you're probably already thinking it's bad, but is there something that really stood out? I will say actually none of it shocked me. And that's because (laughs) a lot of what we're seeing in the 2019 report was already in the 2015 report. It got worse slightly when we think about numbers and strictly numbers, right? But what 
What I was most concerned about was, yes, the numbers and, and um, illuminating the magnitude of the problem, but also the qualitative data, the things that people were saying about how this was impacting their day-to-day life as a law student, how they expect that it'll impact them for years and years to come after they graduate. And I think just, I saw myself reflected in the report. Um, I myself didn't didn't fill it out, the, the survey, because that would be biased, I think. But what I saw was that there were more than more people than I thought who were struggling in the same ways that I was um, as a first-generation university student and as someone who is paying their way through school and who still, still has undergraduate debt and things like that. In terms of the way that people were talking about how it affected their ability to engage in extracurricular activities because they needed to have a part-time job instead and how I think what's one big takeaway is for um, for people who are close to graduating and thinking about what their career prospects are and thinking about whether they are, they can financially pursue a career in criminal law or family law or with legal aid Ontario. And honestly, the answer for most people was no, I can't because I have 150000 or I have $200,000 of debt or even for the people that it's slightly less say it's 50 or 75, that's a significant amount of money and a significant barrier for people to pursue a career in the area that they want. And so I was very lucky. I The only reason I, I'm at law school was because of a, a program that's the only one of its kind at, and in the province, I believe, the Income Contingent Loan Program that was championed by former um, Dean Sawson, who's now Justice Sawson. And that program is the only reason why I'm able to pursue articling in criminal law. Otherwise, I probably would have had to look to Bay Street. So I think just reading those stories was, it just reminds us that it's a problem that's still of great magnitude and that's causing people great stress in their in their lives and in their ability to pursue career where they want to. I want to follow up on a theme you just mentioned, and that is sort of the notion that it's hindering people from practicing certain areas of law, particularly areas of law relating to social justice, criminal law, immigration, family. And I've heard from older lawyers, and I won't name names, but sort of this idea, well, the system's still working because there's still a lot of articling jobs that need to be filled. So clearly, you know, it doesn't matter. What would your response be to that hypothetical person? I have a two-part response to that. One being that I think we need to question not whether the positions are being filled, but who they're being filled by. Is it by people who can afford to fill those positions or is it by people who are really passionate about criminal law but can't do that because they need to article and be an associate at a big Bay Street firm in order to pay back their debt? And the second part of it is even if it's the people who want to be in criminal law or family law or in whatnot who are practicing in those areas immediately – I think the amount of debt I know for myself, the amount of debt that I carry is going to negatively impact whether I can, like you said, start a business, start a sole practice, and what my hourly rate is going to be, uh, whether I can charge a lower hourly rate to clients who are marginalized and who don't have the money to pay, um, or whether I can provide pro bono services, which at the rate of nearly $190,000 in debt that I'm coming out with, I probably won't be able to do as much as I want to. So that's really disappointing because... It's the reason I came to law school was to work in criminal law and to um, eventually, you know, maybe work in criminal defense. And I've, I'm going to the Crown's office and I'm I'm very happy about that. And I think I then at least in that area, I don't have to worry about hourly rates and things like that. But if I ever are to pursue a career in criminal defense, I think I would really struggle with not being able to provide those services, which is the kind of services I came to law school in order to be able to provide. 
Douglas, what sort of thoughts do you have on the most recent reports, if any, and where are you hoping to see this go? You know, your legacy of this LSSO report, where do you hope it will take us? You know, I, I think that a lot of people in our professional community have been quick to throw up their hands in response to these reports, both editions, and say that, you know, there's no jurisdiction to, to solve this problem. And frankly, for people that pride ourselves in intellectual creativity, I think that <laughs> is really stupid. Um, and, and I say that because there are tools available. We see them in how we structure licensing and what pathways are available to the profession. Like, for crying out loud, the law society just spent how many years litigating over its right to set accreditation criteria all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, but you can't solve this problem. That strikes me as tremendously um, uncreative. And I, I think that, you know, there are tools available um, to, uh, to, to resolve some of these issues. I think it is part of a broader discussion. Like, one of the issues in law generally is that law is made up of a bunch of regulatory silos um, between the professions and the courts and Legal Aid Ontario and all these other places that have a role, the Attorney General's office. And um, um, I can't, you might remember, I can't remember who it was offhand, but someone wrote and slaw like about two years ago, but how we need like a legal counsel of Elrond to come together and solve our, and solve our problems. And I think that they're, they're bang on is that these problems cut across the, the various sectors we have in law and our solutions need to be just as integrated. But to outright dismiss that we ha we don't have solutions within the toolbox of the law study itself, I think is, um, tremendously Think to, I think it's just not taking a creative enough approach to what's available. Yeah, I've, I've heard the, those dismissals recently. I mean, not um, uh, being recorded, but with some of the interviews that I've conducted, you know, when we've been talking off the air, uh, sort of this idea of futility that, well, it's not our silo and therefore we can't do anything. The Law Society argued in its factum at the Supreme Court of Canada that legal education belongs to us and here's all the historical basis for that. But now that there's actually a bigger problem than just one law school, they're not willing to wade into that fray. Right. I don't well, know. especially as others <laughs> pointed out, the Supreme Court justice has already alluded to that possibility that this is potentially an access to justice issue that the law societies need to take more stock in. So, uh, Douglas, I want to talk to you about uh, the venture election because uh, I'm really um, happy that you're running. I, I was really excited to see that um, you had announced. And I'm, I'm curious, um, I'm hoping you'll also participate in our other Of Council Venture series and we can get into this a little bit more. But just generally, um, why did you decide to run this time around and what do you hope to accomplish? You know, no surprise, for all the reasons we've been talking about, I, I wanted to try to bring younger calls together around a candidate um, on the ballot this time around. Um, I am running outside of Toronto, which maybe makes me a bit more unconventional for, um, and, and might, might support my, my odds of being able to be that voice for junior people in our profession, those who aspire to join it. Um, but largely because I want to be able to advance some of the thinking that we've been talking about. Like um, in my region in Northwestern Ontario, for example, uh, we are home to the currently the newest law school at Thunder Bay's Lakehead University. Uh, they are, I don't want to call it piloting anymore because they're several years into it, but they have instituted their integrated practice uh, model of licensing whereby the students don't need to article because they have the placements built right into the law program. Yeah, it, looks, and, it sounds great. And we actually have a student starting with the firm this uh, coming semester. They didn't stay north, hey? What's, what's their name? <laughs> no, we'll that's, send them back up. 
<laughs> no, but th- but that I think is the kind of innovative thinking that we need behind this. And you know, when I look at other professions, uh, like in healthcare, for instance, uh, the regulatory bodies can ha- have looked at ways to provide incentives for people to practice in certain geographies or service areas in order to better manage the marketplace for service that is available. And for some reason, law has been resistant to that. But when we're charging fees, like the fees that Heather is talking about, you can't tell me that there are not economic levers in place to help us, you know, ensure a better distribution of service providers in this province. Heather, what are your thoughts watching this venture election unfold and not having a voice, but seeing all these issues flying around on social media and paying the fees that you are? I am optimistic because I see a lot of candidates that are picking up, um, yourself included and Douglas included, that are picking up on um, issues that are facing students and more recent calls. And so I, I am optimistic and that's just my nature, but um, that, you know, that we will find creative ways and innovative ways to think differently about the law. You know, the law is a very traditional profession. It's been stuck in its ways for a long time, but I know that it has the capacity to, to think outside the box and I think that that will be easier if we have people on convocation who are attuned to these issues and who who really care about the profession and want to see some changes made. Okay, so I have a question for both of you. Um, Diversity in the profession has become a rather controversial topic as of late, with many disparities of equity and advantage exposed, and with them being at the forefront of the current venture election. So how do you think we can best move the profession forward to create um, a proportionate and equal access legal community? Douglas, I'll put that to you first. I think the first part of the question has to do with the financial considerations we've talked about. I think we need a more creative regulatory regime that's willing to address some of these inequities because I think that they are economic barriers. But I think if you really do a deeper dive on the data that is in that 2019 report and even in the 2015 one, you'll see that it cuts across other grounds as well, that Mm -hmm. there are certain communities that continue to experience difficulty um, finding their way into the bar and then, of course, eventually the bench uh, and elsewhere. Um, You know, certainly I think that the um, the front line of this debate has been the statement of principles um, that was put in place by the most recent convocation. I am of the view that it is here to stay and it provides a net good. And I think that as people who are committed to advance the rule of law and the cause of justice, that we have to recognize diversity and uh, inclusion as intimately intertwined um, with that. That isn't to say that a statement of principle is was the only way to do that, but I think it's here, and I think that it signals something important to our communities now that it's here, and uh, I, I hope that we can continue that work. We can't just check the box on addressing some of the uh, the disadvantage that we have historically seen in law. Um, some of that is reflected in the challenges facing racialized licensees discussion paper. We can't just check the box by having some blessed language and move on. I think that there is ongoing work to do. And uh, I think that engaging the various bar associations and other groups that are really the experts in a lot of those fields are the best way to move the ball forward. Um, and, that, and that's what I'm hoping the next convocation will, um, will pursue as a mandate. Heather, your thoughts on that? I think it also starts um, with us all looking inwardly and kind of understanding what privileges we don't, we do and don't do not carry. So, you know, I'm a first generation student. I have a really high debt level. I identify as a queer woman, but 
I'm also white and I also have become recently well connected in the legal community through some of my advocacy. So what I want to do is at every step of my career, remember where I've came from and where I'm at and never take what I have for granted. And I hope that others do that as well. And I think that that kind of introspection is what we would all need in order to start towards building a more equitable and open access profession. See, and how is it you don't have a voice, right? <laughs> this is what's driving me crazy. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I think to build on that too, I know I said before that I think that professional culture varies depending on where you are, but we do have norms. And as a profession, um, some of those norms, I think we should be open to questioning them and whether they continue to accord with contemporary and public expectation. Like recently, um, I, some would say I put my foot in it, but I <laughs> And we don't all have to to agree, but I think we at least need to have the conversation. And I think that's what's at the heart of becoming a more equitable profession is being willing to have those tough conversations about disrupting those norms. And one thing I think that is also really interesting about this bencher election, at least you would maybe agree with me, Sean, but the previous bencher election was very much wound up around alternative business structures. And there was a lot of commentary on those issues. And I felt that it really derailed the purpose of the law society in some respects. Like this isn't a political constituency. Our constituents aren't lawyers. As bencher candidates, our constituent is the public interest and the people of Ontario, because that's the mandate we have by statute. And I think that that the last bencher election was really kind of a shame that I think that it became sort of a Who's going to best uphold the creature comforts of being a lawyer in Ontario? And that's not the question we should be asking and answering when we participate and vote in the bencher election. This one, despite people disagreeing when I'm following Twitter and other places, I think that everyone is actually fairly sincerely representing a perspective that is, has some public interest in mind. And I think that we should, we should be proud of that as a profession, that we are engaging in that type of discussion and not one that is more self-interested. Yeah, I agree. And what I've, you know, social media has some really great things about it in that it starts these conversations that we need to have and we don't need to all agree, like Heather is saying. Um, but the problem with social media is it's only 280 characters. And so to take a hot take is yes or no, I disagree, and then it blows up. Um, I think we all need to remember that, you know, this is our trade. We as lawyers should be able to talk things through. We should be able to discuss. We should be able to disagree. And at the end of the day, a decision is going to be made. But we all need to come to terms that we can't all agree on the same things. And, you know, Douglas, you and I, we don't necessarily agree on the garb. I quite like my robes, despite melting in the summer and uh, despite the um, archaic look I have about me. But that's fine. We can disagree. Can we all agree that we don't like how much they cost? <laughs> yes, we can all agree on that. Yeah. I, do you want to know how much it costs to let them out? I, you know, I, I won't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> how many inches are we? <laughs> <out here? laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not telling. <laughs> I want to ask you about politics, Douglas. You're involved in municipal politics. 
Um, tell me, how did you get into that? Why did you pursue uh, this into... It's in Fort Francis, right? I am a counselor in the town of Fort Francis. Yes, we are a community of 8,000 people in northwestern Ontario. We have a sister community right across a river in northern Minnesota. Um, it's about the same size. I actually started my... So my early career was in politics, working for a federal MP. Um, and I've always been politically um, engaged and certainly having been in student politics, much like Heather is, um, that's always been something I wanted to do. I, I did recently pursue a nomination provincially, actually, for the last provincial election, um, and I, I left that race, but was courted by people in my community that liked what I had to say and thought that I would be a good contribution uh, to our local council. We have a council of seven, including our mayor. I'm the only one who's not retired. I think I'm about 30, 25, 30 years younger than the rest of them. So <laughs> it's, but it's a really great group. And, you know, one thing that's really refreshing about it and is that there certainly while there are people that have a partisan alignment because we are not there with a dual loyalty to a party and a people we actually have very constructive discussions um, as a group around how we're going to approach local challenges and typically i think that it has made us a more collaborative legislative body than other levels of government and and, and that's been really interesting and we have some serious challenges as a, as a community too right now that um, have been um you know um on the table for since we started in december so yeah it's uh it, it's really rewarding um i know way way more about things like um water and sewer and garbage pickup <laughs> garbage than pickup. you ever <laughs> wanted to know um but uh, i think they also appreciate that they have a a legal mind at the table and um I'm able to identify some concerns that perhaps another council might not be able to as a result of it. Yeah, and certainly that would be a valuable perspective and skill to bring to convocation, be able to talk these issues through. I mean, even though it may not relate to garbage pickup and sewage, it's uh, something that we can There's all... plenty of garbage to pick up in law. <laughs> <laughs> so Heather, uh, quickly, why did you uh, decide to go to 720? So I think what I love about 720 is that it straddles the line between academia and practice. So it's incredibly focused on one hand on excellent written advocacy, which I love. I've been published a couple times. I love to write. Um, and it's also focused on taking a high level approach to the law and thinking through really complex, complicated, divisive issues in the law. And I think that that's fascinating. But on the other hand, it's also grounded in opportunities to, you know, appear at, um, in front of our country's highest court and our, our province's appeal courts and to hone oral advocacy skills as well. So I think that's what I love about it. I'm really excited to start. So you guys are both super high performers. How do you do it? How do you stay motivated? How do you keep the energy going? Um, you know, it sounds like, you know, especially Douglas, you know, you're doing all these politics and you're just running for venture, but I'll start with you, Heather, just continue. How, how do you keep the pace that you do? It's a really tough question. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't sleep very much, but, um, I wouldn't recommend that. I think, I think it's just about balance, right? And I think it's easy when you're passionate about what you're doing and you, ha you feel like you have a personal stake in what you're doing in terms of your advocacy and your work to keep going. I think that makes it a lot easier. So, you know, I'm invested in criminal law and I love working in criminal law because I've been on the other side. I've testified in a criminal trial. I've been through the process. So I understand it in a deep sense and I feel like that's what motivates me to keep going. And then in respect of advocacy and student politics and things like that, I just, 
I really care about the tuition issue and I really care about accessibility to legal education and about ensuring that our legal profession is reflective of the communities that we serve in terms of its diversity. So it's e- very easy for me to keep going when I am working on things that, uh, that I love and that I'm surrounded by good people and good mentors in terms of working with them. And so, yeah, I think that's, I think that's what it is. What about you, Douglas? I think some of the same, like the things I get to do right now, I, I've, I can very easily easily identify when I'm looking forward to them. And, and that's kind of my litmus test for do I want to do this or not anymore. And of course, there's always things you don't want to do. But I feel very strongly and um, that I'm that I'm contributing to something important for the things I'm involved in. So I'm chair of a pride organization. I'm vice chair of a community legal clinic. I'm a municipal counselor. Um, I have a day job and a legal practice and, and two cats and a house that's upside down right now. <laughs> but, um, you know, on all those things, like I, I, I feel like there are things I enjoy to do and I enjoy the people that I get to work with to do them uh, for the most part. And, and, and that's been, I, I think a source of motivation. I mean, uh, frankly, there's no secret to this. Like I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to BS your listeners. Like, we outsource a lot of things. Um, that's step one. We have a cleaning lady and that's something we've just made a decision to do because there would be like criminal charges in our house otherwise. <laughs> um, the other thing is I have a tremendously supportive partner um, named Peter Howie who props up our household in a million ways that I cannot or are or am unwilling or incapable of doing. So <laughs> that is uh, that is also um, really helpful. And the third thing is I've chosen to practice in a community where I have a great support network. My family all lives within like 40 minutes of where my house is. And we've made decisions that make financial sense for us too. And, you know, I encourage young professionals or people looking for a change of pace. Like I periodically get messages from peers who are grinding it out at these high performing firms and, you know, that they're looking for something new. Like consider a different community. Like we have moved to a community where we could buy a lovely home for less than $200,000 and live five doors down from the water where we could go kayak after work if we want. Um, the commute is always five minutes. It takes a lot of stress out of your life and a lot of financial stress when new pressures arise as well. And so I think that it's important that you can do these things, but don't think you're giving something up because you are so valued by a lot of these communities when you set up shop there and are willing to, um, to pitch in and offer your skills to them. So Heather, I take it you're not kayaking into Osgood. So what do you do to release some stress? Okay, guys, wrapping up the trademark of counsel question. Douglas, if you were the attorney general or you had the power of a Supreme Court to tweak or reverse a decision, what might it be? You know, I think there's two things. Uh, first one, I think that it is a, a shame that our courts are not more online at this point in time. And I mean everything. If it's filed, it should be online. I should be able to find it. And it should be in a text searchable PDF for crying out loud. Like it's, it's like it's time. Uh, second thing, if I could tweak a decision, uh, Heather mentioned the Trinity Western decision. There was some language there around the accessibility of law. I would have liked to see our court go a little further because mm. I think that there are some really issues at play there. 
Unfortunately, the court can only decide things that are before it, but um, um, I think we can draw inferences about where their their heart lies. Heather, you? Douglas took mine. <laughs> actually, both of those things are some things I had thought about. But I ask um, you, Heather, I, knowing that at one point you actually will be Attorney General, so what are oh you my, planning to do in the future? Uh, I think just top of mind since I attended a uh, preliminary inquiry with you this week that was super interesting um, and revolved a little bit around this topic. But I think Bill C-51, well-intentioned as it is, I think that there was a bit of a rush to that. And I think um, that some of it is poorly drafted, if I can say that, that needs to be tweaked and will probably be subject to constitutional litigation, constitutional challenges. So I expect that that will happen. But I think it overall is a piece of legislation that is needed, but there are parts of it that I would probably um, take another look at. Well, you're already my favorite attorney general of all time. So <laughs> thank you very much, Douglas and thank Heather, you. for joining us on this Thank you for having us. It's a Thank pleasure. you very much. Yeah, anytime.